Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Father, we thank you so much for uh, an opportunity to gather together uh, as brothers and sisters uh, to open up your word, uh, to learn from you, and um, to, to just consider um, the state uh, of our souls. Um, and the reality of sin uh, from this text. And I pray that, Lord, that you would um, uh, just um, speak to us uh, in a way that is um, both challenging but also comforting uh, as we seek to uh, just find rest and peace in the grace available in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are working our way uh, through uh, the book of Genesis, the Bible's uh, first book. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, uh, which is one of the most important chapters of the Bible, uh, but also, I think, one of the most neglected uh, because of some of the difficult things that we find in it. But it's one of the most important chapters of the Bible because it answers this question that really uh, everyone asks at some point, and that's the question, how did the world get so broken? How did the world get so broken? Like, have you, have you ever asked that question? Like, like, why are things the way that they are? How did things get this way? Why does it seem like there's, there's something that's, that's missing, something that we're longing for, something more? How did things get this way? You don't have to look around for too long to be confronted with this reality that the, the world just seems broken that things are not as they should be. I mean, even if you're a person who's coming from more like a more, more skeptical sort of, sort of spot on the, on the faith spectrum, uh, even if you're there, you still have to admit that no matter what we do, whether it's advancing technology, progressing scientifically, engaging politically, expanding geographically, no matter what we do, things just don't seem to get better. Generation after generation, century after century, things don't seem to get better. And really, that's how, that's how uh, these categories are how a lot of us, I think, respond to the world's brokenness. You're either in this position of naive optimism that says, just wait, it's going to get better. I just know it, right? It's going to get better, but then it never does. We say things like, we can just uh, advance our way into a perfect world through technology or through science, um, 
I mean, man, you just seen the latest season of Black Mirror? Like, you know that's not true, right? You like see this happening, and you're like, I could see us actually messing things up in this way. Or we say things like, no, we can, we can rehabilitate or legislate bad human behavior away if we just commit to addressing it. And that never seems to work. Others respond instead of with a naive optimism. Uh, others might s- respond with this cynical sort of pessimism that says, Man, things aren't great. They're just horrible. And they'll always be horrible. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. And so let's just make the best of it, right? Let's protect our kids from it. uh, Or or let's just throw up our hands and embrace it. Uh, We're just just all going to die anyways. The Bible tells us that there's, there's another option. The Bible tells us that it's not naive optimism on the one hand, but it's not a resigned pessimism on the other hand, but there's a hopeful redemption. And to see that and to get that and to understand how this hopeful redemption is the answer to the world's brokenness, we need to look at the origin of the world's brokenness. We need to see how we're the problem and therefore we can't be a part of the solution. And Genesis 3 tells us, Genesis 3 tells us the true story of how the world got broken. That we, humans, broke the world by bringing sin into it. And the God who created the world as it was intended to be before we broke it is our only hope for making things right and true and good again. So here's our main idea, just giving it to you on the front end. The main idea is that lies lead to sin, and sin leads to shame. But all of these, lies, sin, and shame, are remedied by the grace that's available to us in Jesus Christ. And so we'll be looking at Genesis 3. Here's the setting. It's that if you remember in Genesis 1 and 2, God said that everything that he made, all of creation from the creatures uh, that inhabit the planet to the cosmos at the ends of the universe, all of it is, is what? It's good. He created everything and he calls it good. And then humanity is created and humanity is good. And then in chapter two, we saw the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve. They're placed in a garden. They're given up a purpose and a mandate, work to do. God makes a covenant with them. You see the first wedding and the first honeymoon and everything is good and everyone is good. And at the end of chapter two, it says... Both the man and his wife were naked and felt no shame. If you remember from last week, uh, that, that phrase uh, in, in, or really that saying is a way to say that that's how perfect things were before the fall. That there was no shame. There was no fear. There was no insecurity. There was just a perfect harmony. But then real quick, soon, we see that everything goes wrong. Just one verse later, at the beginning of chapter 3, Moses, the author of this, it's almost like he wastes no time transitioning from how good everything was to how quickly it fell apart. So here's our first point that we're going to look at at the beginning of Genesis 3. Point number one, we're going to consider and see the destruction of sin. The destruction of sin. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, this is the serpent, said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, we know from other scriptures that the serpent here in Genesis 3 is really just Satan. 
the devil. I mean, in Revelation 12 and 20, the serpent is identified as the devil. Uh, And we see from the overarching story and narrative of the scriptures that the devil is on a mission. He is literally hell-bent to dismantle the perfect harmony of all God's creation. And look, I get that having this talking serpent in the beginning of Genesis 3 is a weird image for us, right? But look, this image is placed here to give us uh, this image of a, of a talking animal arguing with Adam and Eve, tempting them to rebel against a God who is good and true. It's, it's meant to evoke sort of this, what? Reaction in us. It's meant to evoke a reaction in us that, that gets us to, to start to see how backwards this whole scene is how upside down sin is, that this scene and everything that's unfolding is this complete anomaly, and that it's pure irony. I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve were given dominion over what? Over all creation, specifically over all creatures. What was the mandate given to them in Genesis 1? We call this the cultural mandate uh, from Genesis 1, verse 28. If you want to go back a couple pages and read that with me, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says that God blessed them. He blessed humanity, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then he says, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Okay, now go back forward a couple pages, and yet, what do we see here now in chapter 3? We see the image and the scene of an animal, a creature, leading Adam and Eve into sin. I mean, this should have been like a, a red flag to Eve. That something is backwards here, something's wrong, something's amiss. I think the reason that Moses is so sure to include this mention of the serpent is to awaken us to this upside-down nature of the reality of sin. Because God made us to have dominion over the creatures, and yet when we rebel against God, because that's what sin is, rebellion against God, cosmic rebellion, When we rebel against God and say that, hey, we're going to do it our way, what we are doing is we are putting ourselves actually underneath and under subjection to creation. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans understood this line of thought. That's why in Romans chapter 1, he says that really everyone worships. Everyone submits to something, regardless of your faith, regardless of your creed or your background or your family or your upbringing. Everyone worships. Everyone submits to something. You're either going to worship God, the creator, or you're going to worship created things. That's what he says in Romans 1. You're either going to look to God, the creator, for your meaning, value, and worth to determine your purpose and mission in this world, because ultimately that's what worship is. It's not just ascribing to God worth and glory, but it's also uh, looking to him to determine what it means for us to have uh, worth and value and meaning. And so you're either going to look to God, the creator for those things, or you're going to look to creation. That's the destructive nature of sin. When we say yes to sin, when we say yes to disobedience, we're not only saying 
no to obedience, we're also saying no to true and lasting satisfaction, to deep and meaningful joy, the kind that creatures like us can only find in the Creator. And when we choose anyone or anything other than Jesus, that thing that we're choosing is going to demand from us more and more and more, and it will never be enough. Christ is the only one who satisfies the longings of our soul. And so the irony that Genesis 3 reveals, the destructive irony of Genesis 3, is that we choose sin thinking that it's going to make us more than human. We choose sin and disobedience thinking it's going to make us like superhuman. But we end up becoming subhuman. We choose sin thinking it's going to make us more whole. But it leaves us just, just wanting, unsatisfied. It doesn't make us more human. It makes us less human. It doesn't make us more of what we are supposed to be. It actually makes us less. It diminishes what we're supposed to be. After all, we're, we're made, as we mentioned earlier in this series, in the image of God. Not meant not just to find, not just to reflect his glory and his likeness and his beauty and his truth and goodness but to see him as the source of all those things. He is the source of truth, not us, not creation. He is the source of what is good and satisfying, not us, not creation. He is ultimate glory and majesty and beauty, and not us. You see, sin completely destroys us by turning a reality upside down by calling what is evil good, what is false true, by considering what is repulsive beautiful. And so we see that not only is sin destructive, but it's also deceptive. And so that's our second point where I want us to see now not only the destructiveness of sin, but the deception of sin. You see, the essential nature of sin is lying about who God is or what he's done. The essential nature of sin is lying about ultimate reality. You see, we take part in evil to the extent that we participate in and believe and then pass on those lies. Where do we see this? Well, first, I want us to read the end of verse 1 again. Notice what the serpent says to the woman. It says, he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, this is just a, a subtle suggestion that the enemy is making here. And people, when they study this chapter, they'll often point out that the first lie from the serpent comes in verse 4 when he says, you will certainly not die. But that's actually not true. I think the first lie comes in the form of this suggestion, this subtle suggestion, when he says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? 
You see, our enemy, he doesn't start off by contradicting God outright, but by planting this seed of, of doubt, hoping it'll make its way into the soil of Eve's heart and sprout up. He plants a seed of doubt to ask, is God really wise in what he said? Does God really know what he's talking about? Is he being fair to you? Is he being good to you? Does he have your best interest at mind? The point is to have Eve start asking herself and to start thinking, hey, that, that does sound, kind of sound unreasonable, doesn't it? Why shouldn't we eat from that one tree? Is God good if he places restrictions on us? Now, look, I, really quick, I want to... I want to revisit this concept of a, of a covenant that we, we talked about um, a couple weeks ago. And I warned you guys that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like repeating this again and again because I really want you to understand this concept because of how key it is to, to understanding the overarching narrative of Scripture. That God makes this covenant with mankind in the garden, and he says, look, you can eat from any tree, but I want you to stay away from this one over here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when we hear that, we're like, man, I don't, that sounds kind of weird. That sounds kind of messed up. Why would God even provide that option? But as we said a couple weeks ago, just, just the very fact that, that he has this arrangement with them opens up the possibility of a covenant relationship with humanity. In other words, God gives humanity an opportunity to find true and lasting satisfaction and joy in relationship with him. That's a unique privilege that humans have over and against any other creature. We're the only species on the face of the planet that has the privilege and opportunity of entering into this kind of covenant with God. And here we have the serpent comes up and, and, and says, hey, did, did God really say these things? Like, like is, he, is, he, is he really for your good in this? And Eve starts to ask those questions. Why shouldn't we eat from that one tree? Is, is really God good if he places these restrictions on us? And look, the idea here from the serpent was to, was to plant in Eve this emotional desire to question God. It was to plant in Adam this emotional desire to place God under judgment. For both Adam and Eve, they would place God under judgment. That's the one thing about the enemy's lies, is that, is that they always try, his lies always try to, to get us at the heart level, at an emotional level. You see, a lot of skeptics will say that leading with your thoughts will inevitably lead to secularism and leading with your emotions, that's the kind of thing that leads to faith. But the Bible actually tells us that the opposite is true. And if we're willing to be honest, I think we see that that's our experience all the time. You see, most people who've 
walked away, if they grew up in the faith, most people who have walked away from church or walked away from the Christian faith, most of those people weren't argued away from the faith. They walked away because of a desire, something that drew them, something that allured them really at this emotional level. Maybe it was a frustration or a hurt that made them just reject the idea of faith. Maybe it was hypocrisy or injustice uh, that they saw from people of faith that rightly upset them, but then made them want to reject the idea that there can be any good in the idea of faith or community faith. Maybe it's a way of living that seems more enticing, more satisfying than a life of obedience to the word of God. I remember uh, years ago um, when a buddy of mine we're hanging out in uh, this cigar lounge in Lake Forest, uh, and we were debating a couple friends of ours who were uh, uh, just decided atheists. Uh, and my buddy, he, he happened to be a uh, theology uh, professor at Biola. He was also uh, a professor on the history of atheism uh, at Saddleback College. Um, and so we're like debating uh, these, uh, these atheists, and I'm like, dude, I'm so glad I've got, I've got this guy on, on my team, right? Like he's smart, he knows all the answers, and we're, we're debating them. And then, and then my buddy uh, with the PhD starts, starts talking about just the evidences and the merits of the resurrection, and how undeniable it is with the eyewitness accounts and the historical evidence and just like all, and we're just going in circles around. And they're like, oh, well, what about this and, and this thing that I heard? And he's like, well, actually, you know, and then he just like, like owns them. And we're just going in, in, in circles about this. And at, at one point, it's like they no longer realize that every, every argument they had against the claim of the resurrection, there was some reasonable answer to to, to, to those uh, objections and so, um, or to those claims. And so one of them just kind of throws his hands up and he's like, well, how about this? How could a good God allow so many evil things to happen? How could he allow the Crusades? How could he allow the Holocaust? How could he uh, uh, like uh, allow stillbirth and, and cancer and like all these, all these, how could he allow these things? Why would he not do anything about it? And look, I get those questions. I'm straight up with you. Like I, I get the pain and the weight of those questions. But I also know but there's an answer. Because he, he's asking us, he's like, where's your God in all of this? To which I responded, he came. That's what Jesus is. He, he came. He didn't leave the world broken. He came in the person of Jesus to eliminate evil, to right every wrong, to wipe away every tear, to take away all suffering. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's why we call it good news. The whole point of Christianity is that God didn't leave us alone in our brokenness, but that he took upon the responsibility for mending what we messed up upon himself. And it was the only point in this discussion to which they didn't have some quick rebuttal 
to respond with. And there's this moment of silence, and then that same guy goes, okay, well, I can't worship a God who tells me who I can and cannot sleep with. And I'm like, there it is. You see, he worships too. He worships just like I do. But his God will leave him wanting, leave him unsatisfied, leave him broken. It was the lie that he believed, is the, the lie that giving yourself to your sexual desires and your sexual identity will leave you self-actualized, will make you feel like you've arrived, will, will make you feel like a whole person. You see, underneath every sinful choice that we make is a lie, a lie about reality. And all lies deny the truth and goodness and beauty of God at some point. And the serpent knows that. He's cunning, remember? It's like he's got a psych degree. He's got this marketing degree. He knows how we think. More importantly, he knows how we feel. And so he tries to get us to believe something that is just gnawing at the human soul. He gets us asked this question, does, does God really care about you? Does he really know what is best for you? Does he really want what is best for your life to give you true worth, to help you truly flourish? And look at how Eve responds in verses two through three. It says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now look, at this moment, Eve could have set the serpent straight, but she didn't. I want you to look closely and notice she actually made a few revisions to what God actually said we see here that she made a revision of subtracting, where God said, you are free to eat of any tree of the garden. Eve leaves out the word any, and she says, we may eat the fruit of the trees, thereby minimizing God's great generosity. She subtracts the generous provision that God bestowed on them, that he provided and look, this kind of thing still happens today. Like we subtract from God's word. Uh, we're tempted to subtract from God's word in order to fit our own likes and preferences. You may have no heard the story uh, that this is famously what Thomas Jefferson did, our third president. He was an agnostic deist. Uh, and, and he, uh, at one point, he sat down in the White House with a razor in one hand and a Bible in the other, and he, he famously uh, sliced out all the bits of the Bible that he did not like. It's like at that point, the Bible's not an authority in your life in any sense of the word. That's not your authority. You are. And look, if we're going to take any of it at all, we need to take the whole. Otherwise, what's the point? We don't get to ignore the parts that seem outdated or confusing. We have to press in. 
you may have heard that this is, this is why, like, in a sort of our, our preaching philosophy as a church, we, we go through every verse, and we go through each chapter in the books of the Bible that we are studying. It's because we, we don't want to give in to the temptation to skip the parts that we don't like or that are weird or maybe a little uncomfortable. We don't get to ignore the parts that are uncomfortable and challenging. We have to submit to them. We also see that Eve made the revision of addition, where God said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve said, God said, don't eat it or touch it. She adds that God said also not to touch it. She intensifies God's restrictions. She says, God didn't just say, don't eat it. He also said, hey, if you touch it, then like, zap, you're dead. It's like when I tell my kid the consequence for like not wearing his helmet for like the third time in a row is no more bike today. And they start crying, daddy said I don't get to ride my bike ever again. That's not what I said. Look, a lot of times this is how we view God's commands. We, we view them through this lens where we interpret all of his commands as overly restrictive. But the truth is, God is a good father. He knows how we're made. He's our maker. And he's actually out for our true freedom. He's actually out for our deepest joy. He knows that when we try to find meaning and purpose outside of him and his word, that we're just going to want more and more and more, and it'll never be enough. We'll never be satisfied. We'll never be whole and fulfilled. But when we do find joy and satisfaction in him, that's where true life is found. That is life as it was meant to be lived. By the way, this can also be when we add rules and traditions and preferences to God's word and start to to assign those preferences and traditions divine authority as if they came from God uh, himself. That was the era of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages when they came up with a whole bunch of different things. Uh, The most famous one is right around the Reformation when it started. uh, uh, They had this teaching of indulgences. They said, hey, if you give us enough money, you can buy extra grace for yourself. uh, And if you give us even more, you can buy extra grace for your family. That's not how grace works. (laughs) It's also what um, some cults like the the Jehovah's Witnesses or or the Latter-day Saints, they'll say, they'll they'll add these additions. They'll say like, sure, yeah, we can... well, we can have the Bible. We also got some other books with some extra rules and some extra stories that we're going to put over authority into the Old and New Testament. That's the revision of addition. And we see in Eve's response, we also see the revision of softening, where God says, you will certainly die. Eve removes that word certainly to minimize the judgment. Now look, you might be listening to this and, and be thinking that, uh, it, you, you, you might be tempted to think like, that we're being like nitpicky with the word of God. But you need to understand that when you subtract from God's word or add to it or minimize it, the God you end up with It's not a real God. The good news 
and the beauty of the gospel story gets dulled and diminished. And that keeps us from seeing and knowing and experiencing the freedom and joy of the gospel. And why would you want to do that? Why would you want to cut yourself off from the source of true life? Why would you want to cut yourself off from the only thing that can unshackle those chains? You see, I think Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is being very intentional with his use of language and how he described Eve's response, that in one breath she added to, softened, and subtracted from God's word. And look where we ended up. And there's a fourth play made by Satan. More than adding to or subtracting or or softening it, he just outright rejects God's word. And he claims to have a truer word. In verse 4 and 5, he says, no. That's how he said that. No. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He says, you know what? God said if you sin against him, if you break covenant with him, you'll die, but you won't. That's not going to happen. You're actually going to evolve to a higher way of thinking. You'll, You'll see better. You'll know better. And then you'll be like him. You'll be like God. Don't you want that? You won't need him anymore. You'll be your own God. You won't be under authority. You'll be in authority. You won't be dependence. You'll be independence. Those are all lies, literally from the pit of hell, from the mouth of the serpent. They claim to be true, but they're false. They claim to be good, but they're evil. They claim to lead to beauty and flourishing and freedom, but they're just going to lead to suffering and death and the dissatisfaction of our souls. You might feel good and free at first, but in the end, you'll end up with nothing. You'll end up empty-handed, and you're going to lose yourself in the process. You see, every sin, every sin, every act of disobedience is rooted in and based on a lie about God and who he is and what he said. I think it'd be a good and honest question to consider what lies are you believing about God? What might you be adding to what he has said? What might you be diminishing or softening from what he said? What might you be subtracting from what he said? Because when you follow those lies into sin, and when you act on those lies, you descend away from the life that God intended for us. This is the third point the descent of sin. This is our last point. We see the descent of sin. 
And the next few verses is when this just, it all falls apart and the world begins to unravel. This is why we call this the fall. In Genesis 3, verse 6, it says, The woman, having heard this from the serpent, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for attaining wisdom. And so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he, Adam, ate it. By the way, this is kind of a side note. It says that she took of the fruit. All right, just so you know, it wasn't an apple. All right, like, did you know that? Like, somewhere along the line, everybody started saying that it was an apple. Like, you even got some like nutty fundamentalists in the last few decades saying the company Apple's the Antichrist because have you seen their logo? There's even a bike coming out of it. Like, look at their name. I don't know who started that nonsense, probably some Android guy. I don't know, but <laughs> but Eve. That's all right. We love you, Android people. We pray for you. Um, Eve, but verse 6 says that Eve took the fruit, the undefined fruit, and she ate it. She ate it, and she gave some to her husband, to Adam, and he ate it. Now, listen, I, I want to say something on, on this point because uh, you, you'll hear this said a lot in like men's books and at men's conferences and things like that about how the first sin was due to Adam's poor leadership in his household. Because he was there, he abdicated his responsibility to be a spiritual leader. And because of his passivity, because he was a coward, because he failed to be a man, the first sin happened. Now, is any of that true? Yes, it is true. It is true, because Adam was supposed to be a spiritual leader. The Bible says that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. You're either a good head, where you love, lead, and sacrifice like Jesus, or you're a bad head, where you're a bully or, or a pushover, and both of those options are not like Jesus. And like we talked about last week, the idea is not that the husband gets to boss his wife around like a patriarchal chauvinist, but it's also that he shouldn't sit idly by like a passive coward. The idea is that when a wife looks at her husband, is he Christ-like in his leadership? Does he take responsibility? Is he faithful to her? Is he a protector? Is he one who takes responsibility to keep Christ number one in the home, to make sure the family's at church, to wor worshiping in community, living for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. And so, yes, Adam was passive, disengaged. He was an abdicator of his God-given responsibility. But I also need to establish that that is not the point of this verse. And there are significant problems when you make that the point of this verse because it suggests that the fall would have never happened if Adam just manned up. But that's not why that's mentioned here in this verse. The point that that's here in this verse is that there are really two categories of sin. There are sins of omission and there are sins of commission. And we typically think of sin in terms of sins of commission. In other words, uh, where uh, we, you committed a sin by doing what is wrong, like what Eve did when God said, don't eat from that tree, and she goes ahead and eats from that tree. But then there are sins of omission. In other words, you omit from doing 
what is right. And so commission is you commit something that is wrong, and omission is you omit from doing what is right. In other words, you don't do anything at all, like what Adam did when he was right there, saying nothing, doing nothing, not speaking up while this all went down. And look, that's the main point. The roles could have been reversed, and it likely would have had the same outcome. And the point would be the same. That disobedience is not just when you walk towards sin, it's also when you don't walk towards what God has for you and what he's called you to. Another point, main point that could be made is that left to ourselves, humans will make a mess of things. The unfortunate result of the fall is seen in our final verse, that when sin comes, Shame comes. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them, both Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now you need to understand that for the original audience of this book of Genesis, the original Hebrew audience, the worst thing that you could be was naked. Because nakedness just, just, just had this innate natural sense of shame attached to it. Now you may have been told that shame is a negative thing, that no one should ever be ashamed, that you should be proud of who you are. And look, I get that. To a degree, some of us might, might need to hear that sometimes because there's a degree to which that's true. We talked about how we're made in the image of God, every single one of us, regardless of your background, your age, your social status, your nationality, your ethnicity, the color of your skin, your gender, like even your creed, your faith background, your religion, every single person, every human being, man, woman, and child is made in the image and likeness of our triune God and is therefore worthy of dignity and respect and worth and love and protection and value But Satan would want you to believe that all shame is bad and that all pride is good. There's a reason Solomon said in the book of Proverbs that pride comes before the fall. You see, when their eyes were opened for the first time and they were enlightened, the result was not satisfaction. It was not happiness like they thought and assumed would happen. It was not superhuman qualities to make them like God. But what happened was they were ashamed. And so they covered themselves in a feeble attempt with leaves. And let me submit to you that this type of shame is a good shame because it allowed them to feel their brokenness. It allowed them to feel the ugliness of a lie about who God is and what he wants for us. And as we'll see more next week, this feeble attempt to cover themselves in leaves, it doesn't solve their problem at all. But I do want you to see before we close that there is one who can deliver us from sin and shame.
the Bible calls him the word of God in human flesh. Humans rejected God's truth in the garden. And from then on, we continued to reject his truth. Whenever we sin, we continue to reject his truth today. And so what God did is the truth of God became a human being to save us from the lie that is behind every sin. And whenever we're anxious, we believe the lie that God is not in control. And so we try to control it ourselves and we spiral into, into worry and frenetic activity and trying to control people and resources around us. But in Jesus, we see that he is the sovereign one. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords who sits at the right hand of God. And in him, in Christ, we see that God is sovereign and that he's making all things new. And so we don't have to be in control. We can surrender up to him. And when we're dissatisfied, we are believing the lie that God is not good. And so we turn to things other than him that seem like life. Dreams of having my own glory, dreams of having my own way, dreams of my will be done and my kingdom come. They might seem like they move me towards life. They might seem like they would make me happy and satisfied, but in the end, they just lead to more dissatisfaction, to more frustration. And in Jesus, what we find is that he is the living water that satisfies the deepest crevices of our souls. The one who drinks from the fountain of living water will never thirst again. He's the only one that invites the weary to find true rest in him. He's the bread of life. He's the rock in the desert. He's the God of the resurrection. And in him, we see that God is good and that he is satisfying. And so we don't have to look anywhere else for our satisfaction. And when we're feeling broken and when we feel like we just can't measure up and we believe that the, the lie that, that God is not gracious and so we try to appease him with religious activity, crossing off a, a list of, 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 of do's and don'ts, or we become self-righteous in creating our own paths. Jesus shows us that he's the one the only one who fully and wholly and perfectly lived righteously before God. He lived the life that we should live, but never could. And he went to the cross to pay for our sins, to undo the power of Satan's lies and to crush Satan's sin and death by rising from the grave. And right now, the risen Jesus has ascended back to the throne of God where he sits at the Father's right hands. And through the gospel, the good news that the church brings into the world, he invites all who will believe in him to return to the good life of the garden by faith alone. We don't have to perform our way into the kingdom. Jesus did that for us. We don't have to die, certainly die, at the hand of God's judgment. Jesus did that for us. 
We just have to believe. And in him, in Christ, we see that God is gracious. And so you don't have to prove yourself. In Christ, you can live in the joy and the freedom of knowing that you don't have to live for him, but that you get to because you've been born again, dead to an old way of living by your own ways and risen to walk in a new life through Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.